Uh, so that's about it for announcements. I'm sure there's some other stuff. But why don't we get into the book of Haggai? So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles there. Um, if this is your first time trying to find Haggai, just find one of the Gospels and go back, go backwards slowly. And you will hit Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. If you hit Zephaniah, you've gone too far. Um, and, uh, but uh, Haggai is uh, right there at the end of the Old Testament. And we started this, we started this study last week um, called Fixer Upper. Like I mentioned earlier, Haggai is one of the only prophets in the Bible that everybody listens to. Um, so he's got a relatively easy job. He, he, he goes and says the word of the Lord, and everybody goes, oh, the word of the Lord, let's do that thing. Um, and, uh, but it's, along the way, it's an encouragement to good people who are ready to do good things, godly people who are ready to do godly things, it's an encouragement for them when the time comes to do that thing. Um, because we all know that um, we can have the best of intentions to do stuff, but sometimes the timing just isn't right. Uh, and, and sometimes when you try to force a good thing in a bad timing, um, you get um, cacophony. There's a great vocabulary word. Things, things tend to, you just, you, when you try to force it, some things, some things just don't work. And so we learn patience to say, okay, God, in your time, in your time. Um, when I was growing up, there was a guy in our church named Donnie Antonio who was a, um, Donnie was a, Donnie was a guitar player and a bodybuilder. So he was like my hero. And, um, and, and he came to church in Gold's Gym, you know, he, he wore, um, uh, what, what's the word we use for, Ryan, you use this word for a t-shirt that is so tight, uh, smedium, smedium, right, smedium, oh, what, do you, what size do you wear, smedium, you know, they're like wearing an extra small toddlers to make sure all of their muscles are sticking out, um, you know, it's like, oh, it ripped, I'm sorry, my massive, but yeah, it, the, uh, so he, I just remember him, he was a country western singer, he became a, uh, a believer, and he would come to church and he would play, and, um, and he had an internal metronome, and everybody else in our congregation did not, um, and so, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, if you haven't heard this story, my, the church that I was growing up in, we didn't have a pianist or an organist or any musicians of any kind, so our Sunday morning services tended to consist of um, two guitars, a banjo, a badly played fiddle, and a gut bucket. Now, if you don't know what a gut bucket is, it is basically an old wash tub turned upside down, um, has a handle on the bottom of it that gets welded in. They take a broomstick and a piece of clothesline, and they play bass notes with it. And you pull the broomstick, and it stretches the clothesline and changes the tone, the pitch. Uh, that requires a great deal of skill in order to do properly and they did not have it um so so growing up i grew up in a church where we were the ultimate disorganized religion um and and so we we would sing hymns that way if you can imagine what how great thou art sounds like on an out of tune gut bucket um oh washboards and spoons too i should have mentioned those they played those too anyway so uh so donnie was an actual musician so we were all in awe of this guy who actually knew how to tune his guitar and stuff like that and um, Donnie became a believer, and Donnie was just one of the most intense believers you ever met. And he wanted his mom and dad to become believers so much that absolutely every chance he got, he tried to jam the gospel message into every conversation. Now, he was in his, his late 30s, I think, um, at the time. 
And, and I mean, he would come home, he would come back to church just heartbroken because his parents would just keep shutting him down, keep shutting him down. And my dad one time said to him, he said, Donnie, I appreciate your passion. Could you have a conversation with your parents without trying to get them to convert? And Donnie went, why would I do that? They have to get saved. They've got to get saved now. And he was, he, he was trying to do a good thing, but he just had no, there was no timing. There was no sense of the Holy Spirit. It was just, I have to do this. I have to do this now. I have to do this now. And we've all had an experience where we've tried to do a good thing and the timing wasn't right and we just tried to force it and it just seems to make things worse. And then there are times when God's time is just right and you are ready to do the thing and when you do it in God's timing, His glory is manifest and you can't take credit for it. You can't say, oh, I, I just knew... I was just ready. I was at the door. And when, God, when he opened the door, I stepped and I did. And isn't it extraordinary what God has done? And so Haggai is dealing with that kind of a situation. He's dealing with a situation where people have been trying to do the right thing, trying to do the thing that God called them to. It hasn't worked out. They kind of drifted away from the idea. And now Haggai is God's prophet who comes and says, now's the time to do the thing. And it's just basically the messages of, all right, boys, let's get to work. And, uh, and so we're going to be dealing with that in chapter 2. So I invite you to have a word of prayer with me, and then we're going to dive into this passage of Scripture. Father, we thank you for the work that you have called us to as, um, as followers of Christ, as your church. Lord, and we thank you for your Spirit guiding us when to act, how to act, what to do. Lord, as we test opportunities and, and strive to serve you, um, that you, you give us direction as to when and how. Lord, we ask that we would be encouraged by your word, but most importantly, that we would see Christ in your words. We pray this all in his name. Amen. So let's, let's turn to Haggai, chapter 2. If you've already got your Bible open there. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, right? Or as the Jews call them in their scriptures, the twelve, because there are a lot of confusing names. Anyway, Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, um, this is the seventh month, uh, the 21st day of the month. So this is in the, this is in the um, second year of the rule of Darius the king, Darius the, 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 the Mede. Um, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's talking about the temple um, that had been destroyed in 586, and they're trying to rebuild it. Build a new one. He says, who is, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, it's under construction. They're, they're working on it. They're building it. In chapter 1, they had told, Haggai told Zerubbabel, God says now, do it now. And so they've started the work of rebuilding the temple. But the people that had been alive in 60 years ago when the, when the temple was in its glory are looking at it and kind of saying, well, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to what Solomon built. Verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, 
declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. midst fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, In case you're wondering why there's this constant declares, declares, declares. Uh, because this was written in the, um, the, the time of the Persian Empire, one of the things that Persian kings would do is at the end of every line of an official document, they would say, so speaks Cyrus, so speaks Darius, and they would give their lists. So when you read this, so, declares the Lord of hosts, the, the Hebrew word declares there is just the word speaks, right? Amer, and, it, and it is speaks the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts. All right, um, and so it's a it's a regal declaration. It's the declaration of a king to his subjects. This is what I say, so it will be done. All right, um, it is it is an ab- the statement of an absolute monarch saying, "I say it, therefore it is a reality." And so that's the that's what's going on when you hear the declares the Lord of Hosts declares the Lord of Hosts. So so we're dealing with a situation where good people are starting to do a good work. But this good work is not the same as something that happened in the past. It's not as good as something that we recall. And so many of us have in our lives the glory days. There was a time when everything was just peachy. There was a time when everything just worked. I just realized that's a Weird Al reference and no one got it. Um, but but there is a time when um, when... You look back and you go, wow, God was so active here or in this. Or we look around and we see another situation, not our situation, and we go, wow, God was so active in, in their lives. Why can't God be that active in my life? All I've got is this drudgery, this thing, this task, you know, whatever. And it's, it's comparative Christianity. We're, we're looking either at our past or other people's presence. Um, and we're and we're looking at it and saying, "Wow, that glory!" That and and that's what's happening here. Um, there's a group of people there that are saying, "Well, this temple will never compare to the temple of Solomon. This temple will never compare to the repairs that were done by Hezekiah and Josiah. This temple, we're just we're just hobbling something together just for the sake of hobbling something together." Um, and that is really what they did. They they hobbled together a temple. They used it for about 500 years. Then a guy named Herod the, Herod the Great came and rebuilt it and turned it into one of the wonders of the Roman world. But but for about 500 years, it was just it was just a, a little house, smaller than this building. And inside of it, there was a, a a little bench that they called the mercy seat. They didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. It was gone because, as we all know, um, it was taken to wherever Indiana Jones found it. Um, so, so there was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no, there were no any special things. I mean, you read the description in First Kings of this temple, and I mean the things crusted in gold, and and there's curtains, these big gorgeous curtains, and these huge tall doors, and and now they're just building a little stone thing, and they're saying, well, this is a temple, and and this is enough. 
And so there are these old men, you know, um, those two guys from the Muppets up in the balcony. That was horrible. I hated it. They're, they're sitting there going, well, this is nothing. This, this isn't the glory of the, this isn't what we, we, we want the glory of the temple. We want the majesty. We want, and this is nothing. Is it not nothing in your eyes? And, um, and then he does this thing. Uh, the prophecy, when you, when you read Hebrew, all right, so Hebrew is mostly poetry. It's kind of the way the Hebrew language works. But because of the way that the Hebrew grammar works, you don't rhyme poetry in Hebrew. Um, so you don't, you don't, you know, there once was a man from Merrimack who walked, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't do that kind of poetry. Instead, Hebrew tends to have this very rhythmic style and things will be presented in patterns. And often you will read something and it'll, it'll kind of go ding, 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 ding. Or it'll go ding, 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 ding. All right, or it'll go da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, I know that, that I'm describing that like illiterate people describe music, but, that, but that is, that's kind of how their language works. And so you have to read it like that. You can't, so when you, read, when you read it in English, you miss the pattern. So here in verse 4, he says, all right, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the, of the land, declares the Lord, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You see the rhythm of that. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And he states it. He doesn't condemn those who are criticizing the temple because they're right. The temple that they are building is less than the temple of Solomon. It doesn't have all of the physical glory that Solomon's temple had. But his response is not, so beat down those old men who are complaining and tell them to just say, no, it's great. All right? He doesn't what he says. He says instead, he calls them three times, be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong, all the remnant of the people. And the verb here um, in Hebrew, and I'm not going to get into it, but the idea of strength um, in, in this particular verb is the idea of building yourself up. How many of you have ever taken dance classes? I have not, but how many of you have ever taken dance classes? All right, what is one of the things that they often tell you about your posture when you dance? What do they tell you to do? Go ahead. Somebody say it out loud. Everybody's like, we can't talk about dancing in church. Posture, upright. Don't. I mean, you never see somebody dancing the tango. All right. Um, I have a friend. I have a friend, Charlie Hudson, who's a who's a ballroom dancer. I think Christie's been at things that he was at. Um, I don't know whether she knows him or not. Long red hair, big beard, very thin. Awesome guy. All right. He's very cool. Charlie. Charlie isn't. Uh, Charlie. Charlie walks into a room and he's like. He's just got that dancer posture, you know, his body, she knows exactly what I'm talking about now. He, he, just, he just looks like, he just looks like he's, he's just got a dancer's body. He's, he, you know, he weighs 33 pounds, he's six foot tall, you know, he's, and they're like, they're like long lines. You know, people talk to me about things, they're like long lines. I'm like, look, I'm a line segment, okay? I'm basically shaped like an egg. What do you want from me? So, so, but you know, when you, when you talk about that posture, and of course, the first time that they say that, those of you that have taken dance classes and they say posture, you spend the whole time trying to be like this and your back hurts and your shoulders hurt and it, and it doesn't matter what you do. You go golfing 
And what do they tell you? You you take a golf lesson, and what is the coach going to tell you? All right? Every single time. Ray, what's, what are they going to tell you? Correct posture. You're not supposed to play golf like this. All right? Um, I, I, <laughs> I went golfing one time and did this. <laughs> you know, it just I was like, it couldn't make my score worse. So like, like happy Gilmore, you know. Um, so so the, correct posture is important for anything you do. Correct posture is important for carrying firewood. Correct posture is important for, for, for long car rides, making sure that your back doesn't hurt. And, and the Hebrew term for be strong is correct yourself. It literally means build yourself up. Construct yourself for the task that's about to come. Um, when, when, you know, when you're, you're confronted with a, a, a task, if that task involves being on the floor a lot, all of you guys that have done flooring, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about this. You do not lay hardwood like this. What do, what do flooring guys do? They, they get on the ground with giant knee pads, if they're smart, and they get on the ground, right? Right, Mark? Right? Giant knee pads, right? Um, you get on the ground with giant knee pads, and you stay down there. I actually saw one of the coolest inventions I've ever seen was knee pads with wheels. And the guy, the guy had these bobs, you've seen it too, he's like, I want this for Christmas. Right? They, they, were, they were like two knee pads, they had roller skates on them, and you just, casters, and you could just slide around. I'm like, that is cool. I just, my problem is, if I got into a project where two of us had those, inevitably we would be racing down the stairs. <laughs> We're like, all right, you got to keep your balance. You ready? All right, you know, and then trips to the emergency room. Um, but the, but you, your posture has to be correct to the task that you're approaching. Your, your attitude, your, your direction, your body, your mind, your soul, they have to be correct to address the thing. You don't play hockey the way you play golf. You don't do Aikido the way you ballroom dance. Um, there, there are different things. You, you don't swing a baseball bat the way you throw a football. There are different postures for different things. And so when God says to them through Haggai, he says, be strong. He says, set yourself up to do the task that is right in front of you. Correct your attitude, your posture, your position. There is a job about to be done, and the easiest way to do it is to build yourself up, be strong. He's not saying grit your teeth and bear it. That is not the verb that's being used. Hebrew has that verb. Hebrew has the verb. Jeremiah gets told it all the time. Set your face as a flint. There's an encouraging thing. You just go ahead and say it no matter how much they beat you up. Okay. You know, there's a verb for that. But this one is set your posture. All right? Correct yourself. Um, when I started, when I started at, at, at this congregation, I did a sermon from Ephesians where I talked about the armor of God and how the armor of God is not an individual thing. It's not one person putting on the armor and fighting the devil all by himself. The way the Romans fought and the way that that illustration is used is a group moving completely together in solid posture with all of the, the front line shields up front, the spears up over the shield. There was a very specific way that you moved and they would walk. And some of you may remember that day because I came down the center aisle stomping my foot the way that they did. Do you want to see how it's done? All right, so, so the, way that, the way that they... Oh, not that. The way that they would do it you had your shield, you bent your knees, you never stood upright, you never stand upright in a combat situation. 
Right? You always have your knees bent. Posture straight. Shield in front with the bottom of the shield just about on the ground. There was a little cutout in their shields for their spears. The Greeks used these big long spears and they would, they would stab up top. The Romans would have here. And their gladius, their sword, was on their left side. So if the spear, they would throw the spear into the other guy. Then they would draw their sword and stick their sword through that hole. And they would move and turn sideways. The movement is this. It's not, it's not. Because why, why did you have to bring your, your feet down? Because you were driving into a mass of a thousand men, two thousand men, three thousand men. If you went in like this, you were just going to get knocked down. So they would bring their weight forward as they stepped. And then this foot would come back and plant. And that's how they moved. Now you can hear the pounding of that. Now they had nails in the bottoms of their shoes to keep them in place. They would step down and drive those nails down into the ground so they couldn't move. Um, that's actually where the name Caligula comes from, is the nails in the shoes. But anyway, um, so that, the idea of be strong, take your posture and, and be what your job calls you to be. Now we could have all kinds of applications to that. I could tell you that as a student... Right? For the kids, as a student, you must take the posture of a student. The classroom is not the place to express your personality. The classroom is the place to excel, to do what is being presented to you as the teacher. So you adopt a posture to do the job. As an employee, you, take, you adopt the posture to do the job. That's what you do. As a mother, as a father, you go, I don't want to put all the time that's required into disciplining my kids. No one does. Very few and very frightening are the people that take great joy and pleasure in disciplining their children. All right? Most people, most of your parents, just so you guys know, your parents often reluctantly punish you. They do not enjoy punishing you because it's three times as much work as just enjoying you. So just be a better kid, and your parents will have a better life, and then you will. That's just a strategy. I'm just offering that. But take that posture. We have to adopt the proper posture. Be strong. Then the second command that he gives is at the end of verse 4. He says, be strong, be strong, be strong. And then he says, work, for I am with you. It's very important that you read this correctly. First of all, I am. Am. Anyone remember that popping up anywhere else in the Bible? When Moses is going to go to Pharaoh and he says to Moses, Tell them, I am sent you. This is the name of God. It's the verb, the, the, the root of the, it's Yaha, the, the root of his name, Yahweh. And uh, he says, But he says, Work not for me. He says, work, for I am with you. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. All right? Work, for I am with you. When he calls us to work, after we become strong, then there is a task in front of us, and our calling is to do that task because God is present with us when we do the job he calls us to do. 
so often we think that we've got to do something for God and God is watching from on high, judging us, waiting to whack us with a baseball bat if we do it wrong. We, you know, all this thing. We look at God that way and we say, oh, God, God is way up there and he's checking us out and making sure that we're working it. But when Haggai speaks to them, he says, work for I am with you. I am present in this task. This is where you will experience the most intimate relationship with me, your God, when you take the proper posture and do the work that I have put right in front of you now. Oh, I don't experience the presence of God in my life. You want to experience the presence of God? Look for the jobs and ministries that need to be done to fulfill the gospel. Step into them and work. And you will see God. You will experience His presence. When people sit around waiting, I'm just waiting for God to endow me with a gift so that I can find out what I'm supposed to do in the kingdom. It will never happen. God doesn't show you your gifts on a piece of paper and say, now go, I've prepared this perfect role. He shows you your gifts by you, wait, you looking around and saying, what work has God called us to do? I will do that work. And sometimes you do that work and you go, this is not what I was called to do. You become immediately aware of the lack of equipment and, and calling for this work. Uh, jo- Josiah and Tyler were at an Aikido workshop that I was running yesterday. And my friend Ari Reinstein, where are you guys? You're over there. My friend Ari Reinstein started to teach. Did you understand anything Reinstein Sensei said? No. Reinstein Sensei is a high school history teacher. He is a, a, a very um, large individual. And he is one of those guys, he's a great guy, um, but he is one of those guys that just assumes everyone knows everything he, also, he already knows. So he's looking at my 11 and 10 year old students, he goes, you Zan Shin. And I went, I'm just going to take Josiah and Tyler over here. And uh, Mo Stevens, who's another one of the teachers, he and I hung out with the kids. Now, Ari's a great teacher. He's a great martial artist. But he is not called to teach kids. In fact, when I brought out the pool noodle swords, there's a long story behind what those are. You can ask the kids. They'll explain it to you. I pulled out the pool noodle swords. He goes, what are they going to do with that? I said, they're going to whack you. Can I do techniques? No. The kids have survived your class. They get to hit you with pool noodle swords. And he he was like, what? I was like, this is the way my class goes, man. You teach kids, you give them pool noodle swords, and you tell them to hit you. That's what you do. You don't give them real swords. What? That's, That's right. Welcome to Merrimack Aikido, buddy. You will be hit with foam things. Um, we will throw foot, we will throw balls we, we throw dodgeballs at people's heads anyway um, so but the thing is it's like sometimes you get into a role and you realize this is not for me right some people some people get involved in teaching kids all right how many of you know somebody that has an education degree that spent one day in school and went this was a mistake <laughs> these hellions are the worst and then you encounter people that just thrive on that relationship with kids like there there are people like they come home i am so exhausted i am so excited that i got johnny to stop dropping spitballs on jenny's head and they're like they're exhilarated by this task and you go what is going on 
But the point, my point is, before I get too distracted, the, the, too late. Um, my point is, when God, when, when God puts a task in front of you, you should at least put the effort in to see whether that's what God has called you to do. So many people just go, man, I wish somebody would do that. Man, if nobody does that, is anybody going to do that? Sometimes the anybody, somebody, that's you. That's your body that's there. And when you're sitting around and you constantly see a need that's not being addressed, the least you could do is try. Because if you do it badly, it's not going to be any worse than this pastor who talks and you guys keep coming back. You, you, do, it, you do it badly, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's not like the universe is going to collapse if I preach a bad sermon. You guys have endured several. The universe did not collapse. You, you, it's not like the world is going to fall apart if you get into a role and you discover that role is not for you. And that's one of the reasons we minister open-handed at Bedford Road. We don't say, people, you're locked in for a two-year contract on this ministry. Well, what am I doing? Just sign the paper. Now, that's not the way it works. Sometimes people have seasons of life. We, we, we experience it all the way at the elder level and all the way down. People have a season of life where the, that, that role of ministry is just not a fit for them right now. And we can't say, no, you, you have to do it now. Sometimes God calls us to things, gifts us to things temporarily. Sometimes it's permanent. Sometimes it's extraordinary. But if we don't try, we won't know. If we don't, if we don't posture up, look at the work that needs to be done, and at least try to do it, we will never know. You will never know. And the thing is, if God is calling you into the ministry, that is where you... That, and I don't mean the ministry as in clergy, pastor ministry. When, call is, pastor, the, when God is calling you into a ministry, you will experience the greatest intimacy with His presence in that role because that's what you have been molded and built to do. Now, I have a whole other sermon about what people think God's presence is and what God's presence really is in their lives. I won't get into that because I want to get to the third point that he makes. He says in verse 5, a little piece of advice that we all need. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. There it is again. So here's the poetry, and I want you to get what's going on. He says, work for I am with you. That's line one, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. That comes, that lines up with I am with you. All right, work for I am with you. I am in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. Oh well, the Bible says that God casts out the spirit of fear. The only place that we as Christians can truly experience a situation where we do not need to be afraid is when we are at work in the will of God. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm untouchable. No, you are not. God would never, do, and God would never let anything happen to good people. Really. Really. And you've heard people, have you ever heard somebody use that, that, like they come and they're like, I'm having a really struggling time, I'm having difficulty with this, it's like, well you need to get right with God, because God would never do that to somebody that wasn't right with God. Yes, he would. He, he will, the scriptures say that he tests and chastens his children. He allows us to go through difficult things. Being a Christian is not a guarantee that things are not going to happen. But when you are in the will of God, 
Because His presence is there, there's no reason to fear. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He doesn't say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because stop. He says, because you are with me. The shepherd is with me, so I will fear no evil. Now, I got news for you. Sheep get eaten by wolves no matter how great the shepherd is. It's part of the cir- it's a circle of life thing. All right? I need to go back and watch Bugs Life. Um, it's a circle of life thing. Oh, that reminds me. I've had Lion King from Redbox for like two weeks. I should probably return that. Anyway. Um, yeah, I do. No, I, think it's only, I think it's only four or five days now that I think about it. Um, but the, but uh, the, this, this, whole, this whole idea of fear in the Christian, right? You should fear. You should be in fear when you refuse to do the will of God. You should be very afraid when God presents you something to do and you go, nah, I like my priorities better. You should be very afraid. You say, well, if I do that thing, I might touch people with cooties. And it's true. I mean, those of you that go to the the rescue mission, those guys are all very clean and sanitized and don't smell at all, correct? <laughs> I mean, there's never, you never feel threatened dealing with, the, with people that are on the edges of society or anything. There's, there's always a bit of fear all right, in the world. But if we're doing what God has called to us, call, let, 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 me, let me just tell you, if you are doing what God has called you to do and you are in the center of God's will, though they slay you, even if you die there, there is nothing to be afraid of. Why are Christians afraid of death? I will never understand. We claim to follow someone who conquered death. We claim to be in the resurrection. And yet I know Christians all the time that are so terrified that, that if I do this, people could hurt me. They might even, they might even kill me, right? Yeah. Didn't Jesus say that? Blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. Right? Blessed are you when they, when they, they, they uh, speak evil against you. Um, he talks about, he, uh, Paul talks about the fellowship of his suffering. Somehow American Christianity gets backwards. Anyway, three things. Be strong. Posture yourself for the task ahead. Do the work that is in front of you. And when you're in the will of God, there is no fear. There will be consequences for following the will of God, and some of them are not pleasant. There are consequences for living in the ministry, and some of them are not pleasant. Part of the reason my wife's back is, is, is not the way that it should be. Part of the reason that my wife has difficulties in, in sickness and stuff like that is she took a job working with a special needs kid um, and she could tell you the whole story. And the result of that was that she was surrounded by disease and bad posture and all kinds of fun things. That She, by the way, doesn't have a degree in special needs. Not that I'm bragging on my wife. She has an associate's degree in Bible. That does not prepare you to be an educational assistant in a special needs class. 
Um, but that was an opportunity, it was a role, and it was one of the most gratifying experiences he had to have this girl discover language, um, discover how to do basic lifestyle, th- life, just basic life things. And it, it, it had a toll on her body. Right? It had a toll on things. But it was where she needed to be at that time. It was that role that she needed to be in. And there's no fear there. Does it mean that you live with the consequences of doing God's will for the rest of your life? Yes. Yes. But Paul talks about bearing the scars. Right? He talks about bearing the scars of his ministry. You can check that out. And lastly, he says this. And, and I, I, I want to just drop this one on you and then we're going to have Lord's table and, and join in fellowship there. But he... He says this in verse 6. He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That is a reference to Genesis 1. It is God asserting his sovereignty over all creation. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And when anybody hears that, they immediately think, ooh, money. That's not what he's talking about. I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts, because silver is mine and gold is mine. If I wanted to give you gold and silver, I would. He has. He does. But that's not the focus. The focus is the glory. So what's my big idea? Let me give you this one big idea. Glory takes time and work. The glory of God in your life takes time and work. It takes being strong, it takes dealing with the work, it takes overcoming your fear, the glory of God in your life takes work. And you can't take credit for it. God will not manifest Himself in ways that we can easily claim for ourselves. Now don't get me wrong, people claim the glory of God for themselves all the time. But it's always awkward and weird. It takes a little bit of convoluting to get it to work. Glory takes time to build. Glory takes work to build. Glory takes overcoming fear to build. And it is not ours to measure what is the glory of God. It is not ours. Remember when I started talking about comparing yourself to others and saying, oh, that person's got such a glorious life. Their kids are perfect. They never have any problems. He has, oh, God is blessing him, but not blessing me. It is not ours to measure what is the glory of God. It is not ours to say, well, that church is more glorious than that church. Therefore, we should be like that church because that's God's, that, that we want that kind of glory. That is not our job. And I'm wagging my fingers on purpose. Because we as Christians, we tend to walk around and gauge what is God's glory. Who is more holy than the other person? What disciplines make you better? What ministries are more elevated than others? What people deserve honor more than others? I think the Bible talks about us giving honor to people um, and how that's not biblical. Glory is not ours to measure. Glory is God's to possess. It takes time for us when we are working for the glory of God to, to be built. But it will not look 
like what we think it should be based on our past experiences or our comparison to others. It is God's glory, not ours. It is God's glory, not ours. So when we look at our tasks, our role, our parenting, our whatever, and we look at it and we go, if only it was this much better or it was this thing or was this, but God's glory can be our wounds, our brokenness, our celebrations, our joys, our wealth, our poverty. It can, it can be um, any number of things. It's not for us to measure. It's not for us to measure and say, this is more glorious than that. Because ultimately, all of God's glory, the English word glory comes from the word glow, ultimately all of God's, all of the God's glory that is manifest here on earth in our lives is just a reflection of Him, who He is. And so we don't have the right to call it this is more glorious than that, this is better than that, this is God's doing this. We don't have that right. Our obligation, our role, if we're going to build the temple, if we're going to build a house, by the way, it's a very interesting thing. Haggai is all about the temple in Jerusalem, never uses the word temple. Only says my house, this house. God is building a house. Then he is building our glory, or his glory, through our work. So get the right posture, do the job ahead, and don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would um, use us as a church to bring your glory manifest into this world. Lord, I'm aware that at times I struggle with lots of this stuff. The fear, the... Um, the need for it to be liked, to be approved of, the, you know, all of those things happen. But ultimately, God, it comes down to your, your work being put in front of us and us preparing ourselves and doing it. Lord, we pray that you would work through us, that that would be a reality in our lives. And Lord, that you would encourage us and strengthen us in those tasks. Because this is not, Haggai doesn't speak to those who have turned their back on you, but to those who are seeking to honor you and encourages us that this is the work to be done, this is the way to be, and we should just get to it. Lord, we ask um, always and truly for your Spirit to guide us in, in our time in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to gather around the Lord's table this, this morning um, as we conclude our worship together. Uh, the first Sundays we still are going to be coming forward um, to receive the Lord's table. Um, and so the servers will be coming.